That's John chapter 15, starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Our second reading is from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak round you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. 
It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, "Now I am sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting." When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "You are out of your mind." But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, "It is his angel." But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, "Tell these things to James and to the brothers." Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, "The voice of a god and not of a man!" Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory. Give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I've been thinking a lot this week about being on the winning side. Just about seven years ago, my daughter got married in this church, and she married a Stoke supporter. And、uh, as she went down the aisle at the end, they went down the aisle to Delilah. The Stoke City song, and Simpo was channeling his inner Tom Jones. And since then, Stoke City have moved from mid-table in the Premier League to bottom of the table in the Premier League to mid-table in the Championship. And being a Stoke supporter has been a little bit like being a Manchester United supporter in the same period decline. But I want us to see today that in all circumstances, however bleak, God's word triumphs. We've got just one point, and it's that two observations, three implications. The point: in all circumstances, however bleak, God's word triumphs. Did you notice in that really gripping reading that it begins and ends in death? So verses one and two. See the death of James, the brother of John. This can only have been the most enormous blow to the church in Jerusalem. Glance at it there, page one one zero nine. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands 
on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James and John, they were the sons of Zebedee. James and John were two of the first of the apostles chosen by Jesus. In murdering James, King Herod had taken out one of the key pillars of the early church. You can only imagine what it must have been like. Having murdered James, seeing that it pleased the Jewish people, Herod, for political gain, had Peter imprisoned. And it's quite clear that he's going to murder Peter as well. Peter was the man on whose teaching Jesus declared that he would build his church. Peter means rock. And Jesus gave Simon the name Peter because Peter was the rock on whose teaching Jesus was going to build the church. So verse 3, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Things then, at the beginning of chapter 12, appear absolutely desperate. I was thinking what it must be like if it were a similar situation today. Just a couple of weeks ago here on Sunday, we had an archbishop, the Archbishop of Sydney, preaching in the morning, and a bishop, Bishop J. Bean, the bishop of the Confessing Church in New Zealand, preaching in the afternoon. Two of the absolute key leaders of the church in Australia and New Zealand. It's as if you were to read that Kanishka Raffel, the Archbishop of Sydney, had been put to death by the Australian government, and Jay had been arrested by Jacinda. The chapter ends, you will have noticed that, with another death, the death of Herod. Verses 20 through 23, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to Herod with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give glory, the glory to God. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And then we have this extraordinary statement. Did you notice verse 24? But the word of God increased and multiplied. In other words, in all circumstances, however bleak, God's word triumphs. That, that really has been our theme here on Sunday afternoons right the way through the autumn. If you've joined us, and many of you have today, the book of Acts that we're looking at is best understood. Incidentally, it's one of the, the most reliable histories of the ancient world and the growth of the church in that time. It's recognized by all historians as that. The book of Acts is really a book better named as the ongoing acts of Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Acts, why the unrelenting advance of Jesus' teaching, it just keeps coming, it keeps coming, it keeps coming. It's like the incoming tide. It's like the approaching tornado. It's the, like the onset of winter. It's like the avalanche as it gathers pace down the mountain. 
And if we had time, I'd take you back through the book. The book of Acts is basically organized around six major blocks of teaching. And at the end of each block of teaching, I call them panels, at the end of each panel, each block, we have a statement. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continues to increase. Chapter 9, verse 31, the church throughout Judea and Samaria had peace and it multiplied. Chapter 12, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 16, verse 5, the churches were strengthened. They increased in numbers daily. Chapter 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the ongoing acts of Jesus Christ, the word increased, chapter 6, verse 7, the church multiplied, chapter 9, verse 31, the word increased, chapter 12, verse 24, the churches increased, chapter 16, verse 5, the word increased. It's like the incoming tide. And if you have any sense of history, and they've taught you anything in your Christian, in, in your history classes, they will have taught you that the church has grown and grown and grown and grown and increased and multiplied across the globe such that it is described as the editor of The Economist as one of the wonders of the modern world. Now, in this section, this panel, running from chapter 9 through chapter 12, we've seen the advance of Jesus' kingdom amongst previously uncharted territory. Non-Jews are surrendering to Jesus to follow him as their king. And in this section, for the very first time, the good news of Jesus Christ has reached non-Jews. Jesus has been proclaimed as the judge of the living and the dead. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, you will meet Jesus on the other side of the grave. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus has been proclaimed to non-Jews. Available to you today, as you can see in Jamie's testimony, is the possibility to meet the one who you will meet as your judge on the last day, today as your savior. So that when you meet him on the last day, he's your friend. And he's your friend today. But the shocking thing throughout this panel, this block of teaching, has been that it's non-Jews who are responding. And throughout this panel, it's Peter who has been center stage in all of the action. Peter, 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 Peter. He's been taking the gospel. He's been taking the gospel. He's been taking the gospel. And that also has been deliberate because from this point on, it's the apostle Paul who's front and center in the advance of the gospel. But before Paul starts advancing the gospel, we need to realize that this is a real work of God. Peter is the one on whom the church is built. And so Peter is the one who, if you like, as the dam first breaches, he's the one who takes the gospel to new, new non-Jews. You know how sometimes you come across people who say that the work of shaping the Christian church was all Paul's business? Well, actually, this section of the book of Acts is to show us, no, it wasn't actually. 
Peter began it. And you know how sometimes you come across people who say that the work of taking the Christian message was hijacked by that nasty guy, Paul, who really hated everybody and all the rest of it. Well, no, actually, it wasn't Paul who charted the start of the advance of the gospel into non-Jewish territory. It was Peter. And at the end of this panel, we have this incident where Peter is arrested, James is put to death. And you know how somebody might say, well, all this opposition to the Christian gospel that gets faced whenever the gospel advances into non-Christian territory, oh, well, that's just because it's nasty people like the Apostle Paul who do it. Well, actually, it happened when Peter did it. And so in this section, as the section closes, we are shown that however bleak, yeah, death at the start of the chapter, imprisonment Peter, Death at the end of the chapter, however bleak, nonetheless, the word of God increased and multiplied. In all circumstances, however bleak, God's word triumphs. Notice if you look back at the beginning of the chapter that the opposition comes both from the church and from from the Jewish establishment and also from the state. Do you see verse 3? When Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And often the opposition to the advance of the gospel comes not only from the establishment, the political establishment, but also from the religious of the day. Of course, because the religious rulers consider Jesus a threat, And the secular powers don't understand the rule of Jesus and consider Jesus to be a threat. And individual by individual by individual, people don't want to surrender to Jesus. And yet, in spite of the opposition, in all circumstances, however bleak, God's word triumphs. This is what it looks like for the kingdom of King Jesus to advance. Yet borders are crossed. Yet most unlikely people become Christians. Oh, yeah, yeah, the word advances into new situations. Oh, true churches are formed. People are forgiven. Beautiful groups of people who know how to forgive each other and relate to each other as brother and sister are formed. And yet there is fierce opposition. James is slaughtered, murdered. Peter is imprisoned. In all circumstances, however, however bleak, God's word advances. Now, on a small and individual scale, I guess every one of us who is Christian will understand this. You become a Christian, some friendships cool. Uh, You become a Christian, if you're from a non-Christian family, why, some family members object You become a Christian and start speaking about it in your workplace, and at work, your boss takes you to one side. Oh, I'd rather you didn't talk about that too publicly. You become a Christian, and people in the school, well, they think you're really rather an oddball. I remember up at Cambridge, one young student at King's College was taken to one side by the dean of the college. Please don't speak so openly about Jesus Christ. A a young student here at King's College. Oh, if you want to progress as a student at King's, 
please don't be quite so open about your Christian faith. I met a school chaplain, not last week, but the week before, who has been asked by the headmaster and the staff and the governors of the school not to have quite so clear biblical teaching in chapel at the school. On a larger scale, one of my favorite books is uh, this book. It's actually two volumes, George Whitfield. It's about the great uh, advance of the Christian gospel in the 18th century. The reason we have Christian institutions and so forth in this country today, at least in part, is because of the extraordinary advance of the Christian gospel in the 18th century under George Whitfield. But as George Whitfield went and preached the gospel, you know what happened? The clergy, who didn't like the biblical gospel, opposed him vigorously. They organized crowds to shout him down as he spoke. They hurled bits of dead cat at him from the trees. They sought to oppose him all the way. I'm sorry if you're a cat lover, but that's what they did in the 18th century. Not everybody did it. Opposition, opposite. Another of my favorite books is this book, Grace, Grit, and Gumption. It speaks of the extraordinary Christian advance around about 1910 in Wales. In the open air, we were much opposed by the owner of a pub. While I was speaking, he was very, very angry. Next day, two publicans got really enraged. A couple of days later, the next time he holds a meeting outside our pub, I'll shoot him. Opposition, opposition, opposition. Advance, 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 advance. And Peter is here to show us that as the Acts of the Apostles or the ongoing Acts of Jesus progresses and you see Paul getting opposition, opposition, and as you face opposition in your school, at your university, in your workplace, from the HR department, that's how the gospel advances. And frequently opposition from hostile religious people, even as opposition comes from secular authorities. Around about 1996, we started a new church down in Fleet Street. And initially, we met that new church at lunchtime in a church building. Uh, And After a while, the vicar of the church took against the speaking of the Christian gospel in that church. We had 40 or 50 people coming. It was growing and so forth, and he turned us out. And so we went, and thankfully, the pub opposite had a room, and they let us in. And I thought to myself at the time, that is classic Christian advance. Actually, I wrote to the... uh, vicar at the time. He, it was Christmas time and noted how ironic it was that at Christmas time there was room in the inn for the gospel to be preached. In every circumstance, however bleak, God's word triumphs. Two observations. First, God works as he sees fit to protect the servants of his word, God's protection Secondly, God works as he sees fit to overthrow the enemies of his word, God's destruction, protection. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed as we read through chapter 12, but the account of Peter's imprisonment, its release, is told with the most wonderful irony. At times, it's almost comical. At first, it seems like a hopeless cause. Luke emphasizes the security measures. There are four squads of soldiers, verse 4. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Each squad, as we go on, has four guardsmen. Two of the guardsmen are chained to Peter with two chains. When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. There are two locked gates to the prison, and there's one great iron gate at the outer prison door. That's the one that swings open of its own accord in verse 10. Here then is Peter under the closest possible watch. This isn't one-to-one observation of uh, uh, modern day. It's one-to-four observation, 24-7 maximum security. And the soldiers know the seriousness of their responsibility. Did you notice in verse 18 that when his escape, escape was discovered, there was considerable disturbance. There was no little disturbance. And did you notice in verse 19, when Herod discovered that these soldiers had failed in their task, he put them to death. So this was life or death for the soldiers. And Peter was under the closest possible observation. This is Alcatraz the impenetrable prison cells of the maze prison as it used to be, Guantanamo Bay. But the way Luke tells it also underscores the miraculous release. Peter is in a deep sleep and he needs to be woken up, verse 7. An angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. It must have been quite a thing. He was so fast asleep. He needed to be prodded with the spear or something, or the staff rather. Peter is chained and needs to be freed. Peter is stripped and needs to be clothed. Dress yourself, put on your sandals. Peter is in unfamiliar and dark surrounding and needs to be led and lit. He's under guard and needs to be protected. And then verse 10, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. And just in case we haven't got the point that this is a miraculous release, verse 11, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So it's a miraculous escape. Only God could have pulled it off. God has intervened deliberately and specifically for the preservation of his man for the express purpose of advancing the gospel word. God acts as he sees fit to preserve his servant. He doesn't always do it. Think of James. He only does it as he sees fit. But Peter is invincible until such point as his task is complete. Don't you love the way Luke recounts Peter at the door when he gets to the door, eventually, where the disciples are meeting? It's there in verse 12. 
when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered, and he knocked at the door. They were inside praying. When he knocked at the door, a servant called Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you must be joking, but they'd just been praying for his release. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, well, it's just his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So Peter's left outside, dressed in his prison dungarees, expecting any second a full set of dominum and teeth to sink into his left buttock. And they're inside praying for his release and won't believe that it's him outside. Bleak times, but God works to protect his servants as he sees fit. It's a huge Bible theme. Joseph in Pharaoh's prison, David before Saul, Elijah with Ahab, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the lions, in the fiery furnace. Jesus, he walks through the crowd. But then destruction, God will act as he sees fit to overthrow the enemies of the gospel. And we see that in verse 20 to 23. Herod's grandfather, remember, was the one who slaughtered all the children when Jesus was born. He was a nasty piece of work. He murdered his wife, his two sons, and on his death, Herod's grandfather had arranged for countless officials also to be put to death because he wanted there to be sufficient mourning when he was buried. Not a nice guy. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. He came from a troubled family. He was immensely powerful. He controlled the food supplies to Tyre and Sidon. But Herod Agrippa, like his uncle and his grandfather before him, had an anger management problem. And like so many modern despots, his uncontrollable temper is matched by his unsurpassed ego. Listen to the Jewish historian, Josephus. He tells the same story in his ancient histories. On the second day of the show, Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout. The silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it. Its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed. Immediately, his flatterers called out from various directions using language which boded him no good, for they addressed him as a god, invoking him with the cry, Be gracious unto us. He was seized by a severe pain in his belly, which began with a violent attack, carried quickly into the palace, suffering continuously for five days, He died in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. And the point Luke points us to is that King Jesus, the true king, will work as necessary to overthrow his enemies. The chapter begins with James dead and Peter in prison. The chapter closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. God acts as he sees fit to protect his servants and God acts as he sees fit to overthrow his enemies. Well, three implications, three things for us. First, pray. 
Just have a look at verse 5 of chapter 12. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So here's our part in it all, earnest prayer. And the word for earnest is fully stretched, outstretched, without slack, completely taught prayer. Think Usain Bolt, stretching for the line. Think of the, the, the marathon, whoever it was that won, ran, won the last week, pushing themselves all the way, earnest prayer, to God by the whole church. So you want to see the gospel advance in your school? Well, God is going to advance his gospel come what may. Earnest prayer to God by the church. I know numbers of you are involved in school Christian unions and so forth. Earnest prayer to God by the church. What will it look like for the Christian gospel to advance in your school? Oh, for the Christian gospel to advance in your school, oh, intense opposition. Oh, yes, the head won't like it if he's not a Christian, nor will other teachers in the senior staff, nor will the governors. Sometimes they will seek to block it. Earnest prayer to God by the church. That is authentic Christian advance. Trust. Prayer. Trust. Trust that God will do it. That's the point that he's making. He's certainly done it over the last 2,000 years. Look at the church. It's one of the wonders of the modern world. It has advanced across. It is the greatest global phenomenon that there is. If you know anything about history, trust God. And trust God for your own place in this. A couple of years ago, we interviewed Gareth and Catherine Mort. And at the time, um, Catherine was heavily pregnant. And they work in northern Nigeria. And David, their Fulani pastor, was a marked man. Death threats were being made against him. And we asked them the question, what's it like to be going back into northern Nigeria carrying the Christian gospel, and Gareth responded like this. Do you know, if you're a Christian, taking risks is not as risky as it might seem. David Livingstone, the medical missionary, do you remember what he had to say? I am immortal until my work is accomplished. Oh, yeah, there's going to be opposition But until God's purpose for you in your workplace, in your office, wherever it is God happens to have put you as a missionary, that's what you are if you're a Christian, in your neighborhood, at the school gate, you are immortal until God's work for you is complete. Trust. Speak. Uh, Speak regardless. Speak boldly. Speak of Jesus. Keep speaking. Don't keep quiet. Whatever the authorities may say, keep speaking because you're on the winning side. Nothing can stop the relentless advance of the Christian gospel. They tell you to be quiet in the HR department. Keep speaking. They tell you not to speak of the Lord Jesus in King's College. Keep leafleting. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. There's a wonderful guy called Ben, dear friend of mine, worked down at Schroders. He wrote a booklet about wise investment 
and being a Christian is a wise investment. He went around and gave one to every single person at every single desk in the office. The HR department took him to one side and said, Oi, you can't do that. And so he went round every single desk. I'm so sorry I gave you that. The HR department told me I shouldn't do it. Now let me tell you what's in it. And they were all fascinated. And he had uh, how many employees there were. Spent the next two weeks telling them the Christian gospel. One last implication. Okay, pray, trust, speak, fear. Oh, if you stand against God, you're not on the winning side. If you stand against God, you will meet God in judgment. The living and the dead will meet God in judgment. Herod stands against God. Fear. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll sing. Gracious Father, we praise you for your wonderful gospel. We thank you for news that Jesus has been appointed as judge of the living and the dead, and that in Jesus you offer us forgiveness for our sins so that we can have Jesus as our friend today. And we praise you that this good news has been spreading across the globe relentlessly, unstoppably, from the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please help us to give ourselves to earnest prayer. Help us to trust you deeply and to keep speaking. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.